Hello, I'm Thibaut Charlette, the Chief Researcher of the Adrianople Group, and today I have the pleasure of talking to Daniel T. Griswold about free trade-related issues. We start our conversation by talking about the U.S.-China trade wars before moving on to Brexit. At the end of our conversation, we talk about the case for trade in general. We go over common arguments against free trade, we talk about the role of sanctions, and we discuss how technology is changing the way we understand and perceive trade. Dan Griswold got his bachelor's degree in journalism from the University of Wisconsin at Madison. He got a master's in politics of the world economy from the London School of Economics. Later, he served as press secretary for Congressman Vin Weber of Minnesota. He's written articles for the Wall Street Journal's The LA Times and has appeared on CNN, PBS, CNBC, and many other places. He joined Cato in 1997 and eventually became the Cato Institute's director for the Center of Trade Policy Studies. In 2009, he wrote a book called Mad About Trade, Why Main Street America Should Embrace Globalization. He served as president of the NAFTZ, National Association of Foreign Trade Zones, from 2012 until 2016. Currently, he is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University and is the co-director of the Trade and Immigration Program. He recently has published two studies of interest to us, leading the way with the U.S.-U.K. Free Trade Agreement and how the United States should respond to China's intellectual property practices with Donald Boudreau. It is, with no further ado, that I would like to introduce Daniel T. Griswold and thank him for coming on to the show. Can you explain a bit what a trade war is from the perspective of somebody who might be uninitiated in the concept? A trade war, uh, there isn't a clear definition. Uh, it's kind of, you know it when you see it, but it's, I would define it as uh, escalating tariffs on both sides of a dispute that are, that are significant and, and impose a significant uh, barrier to uh, international trade. And I would say by any definition, uh, the United States and China are in a trade war right now. So what kind of dispute initially caused this trade war? And can you give us a bit of background on uh, what, what this trade war means? Yes, uh, the United States and, and most other major trading countries in the world have, have had uh, running disagreements with China about its, its policies. Um, I think the main focus is on the treatment of intellectual property, uh, that the Chinese government doesn't do enough uh, to protect intellectual property. And we're talking, you know, patents and uh, computer coding and trade secrets, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, and even that the Chinese government itself and the military is actively uh, using uh, s cyber tactics to steal data from uh, companies and, and other uh, governments. Uh, China also has a policy that requires uh, foreign investment in certain sectors in China uh, to be joint ventures. Uh, the automobile sectors, uh, an example right now. Uh, and as a condition of those joint ventures, they require that technology be transferred uh, to the Chinese company. And then uh, if the joint venture ends, the Chinese company has uh, the intellectual uh, property. And there are other aspects to it. Uh, this is a real problem. Uh, the cost that it imposes on the United States, I think, is up for some debate. Uh, the U.S. International Trade Commission uh, a few years ago looked at it and said U.S. companies were losing 
about $50 billion a year in sales because of violations of intellectual property. Um, the U.S. has brought cases in the WTO. We've negotiated with the Chinese government. There have been some improvements. China has uh, come a long way in a number of areas uh, over the last uh, 20 or 25 years and since they joined the World Trade Organization. Uh, but once the Trump administration came in, these efforts ramped up dramatically. And about uh, 13 months ago, the president uh, became frustrated with the pace of negotiations with China. I won't go into all the details, but the U.S. started escalating, imposing additional duties on imports from China. The Chinese retaliated. Uh, even as we're speaking today, uh, the president is imposing new tariffs on China. China is retaliating against the United States. So the bottom line is uh, right now, uh, both countries have imposed tariffs of anywhere from 10 to 25 percent on almost all goods traded between the two countries. So how does this tariff um, enforce? Is it, for example, that the Federal Trade Commission will just say all goods on China will have to pay a 20% tariff? Or is it more like the U.S. is picking out the type of goods that China is exporting and, and putting tariffs on those? Yes, it, it all goes through really the uh, office of the U.S. Trade Representative, and that's headed right now by uh, USTR Robert Lighthizer, who's a longtime critic of trade with China and really sees the world uh, largely as President Trump sees it as a kind of uh, win-lose uh, trade competition uh, built around uh, trade trade balances and uh, tariff levels. So. Uh, the U.S. Trade Representative's office is using a law called Section 301, uh, and that's from the 1974 Trade Act. And that allows uh, the, the administration to impose duties on other countries that are treating the United States uh, companies and exports unfairly. That isn't real well defined. Uh, the law does require that the U.S. action be proportional to any economic harm caused by the foreign practices. Uh, and it, so it, it was a Section 301 initiative by the administration uh, last summer that started uh, this uh, tariff war uh, with, with China. In terms of the retaliatory tariffs on the Chinese side, um, how is China responding to these tariffs and how will this affect trade in the states? Well, China, China is responding on a, what you could say is a quid pro quo. So last summer, the U.S. started this all off with tariffs on $50 billion worth of imports from China. Uh, and that was roughly equivalent to what the U.S. International Trade Commission had said U.S. companies were losing in sales because of China's uh, intellectual property practices. Uh, but the president then ramped that up by imposing duties on $200 billion worth of imports from China. China retaliated. We we import a lot more goods from China than they import from the United States. So we, we have a lot more imports to target uh, with uh, our duties. Trade is a win-win. Countries that trade with each other, uh, people in both those countries, both those countries are better off. Well, by the same 
remorseless economic logic, a trade war is a lose-lose proposition. So the, President Trump is right. China is being hurt by our tariffs. We're a major export market for China. Uh, but the United States is being hurt as well uh, in at least two very big ways. Uh, one, Americans are being hurt as importers and consumers. Uh, despite what the president says, Americans are paying for these tariffs. They are taxes on imports. Uh, there have been some major studies by the National Bureau of Economic Research, the New York Fed, and others uh, that have shown that there's almost a 100% pass-through to the American public, uh, businesses and consumers that are importing from China uh, of the tariffs. So a 25% tariff leads to uh, a proportional increase in prices paid by Americans. So the $30 billion or so that the uh, U.S. Treasury is collecting in extra duties because of these recent tariff actions, uh, that's coming straight out of the pockets of Americans, American consumers, businesses. It's been disrupting supply chains uh, of U.S. companies that are importing parts uh, and other materials uh, from China. So that's a huge impact that is costing the U.S. economy uh, more than a billion dollars a month uh, in a drag on the GDP uh, plus higher prices. And, th and the second way we're losing is uh, our imports to China, our, our exports to China, China's imports from the United States. They are a major market for U.S. exports. China is uh, the third or fourth largest market for U.S. exports, depending if you look at the European Union as one economy or separate economies. Uh, we export uh, uh, or did more than $100 billion worth of goods to China, farm goods, manufactured goods, including automobiles. Uh, we export services to China. Uh, and U.S. companies sell another $350 billion in China through their foreign-owned affiliates in China. So we're losing sales. And actually, uh, U.S. exports to China have dropped more sharply in this trade war than Chinese imports to the United States. So it's just been a lot of pain all around. Recently, China announced they aren't going to buy any U.S. farm goods uh, for the foreseeable future. And that's been uh, a big loss for U.S. soybean farmers, dairy farmers, uh, uh, poultry, and uh, pork uh, producers. So it's just been a big uh, mess. That's why you see the stock market uh, plunging by hundreds of points, uh, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, every time the president tweets about an escalating trade war with China. So what type of... Um, but there are certain there certainly is an argument to be made that China is using unfair trade practices, is stealing intellectual property, that it is also manipulating its currency. Um, what what kind of argument is there that because of this, it is justified for the U.S. to put pressure on China, or else other countries would follow this uh, bad example? Yeah, well, well, first, uh, some of those charges are more justified than others. The intellectual property one we covered a moment ago, and that probably has the most validity. China should change its practices. There's no question about it for the benefit of other countries, but also for the benefit of China. It's got its own uh, intellectual property uh, industry in its country that, that should be protected to encourage more 
in innovation. Uh, unfair trade, that's kind of in the eye of the beholder. You know, uh, since China joined the World Trade Organization, its tariffs on U.S. Uh, goods being exported to China has dropped significantly from uh, an average of about 25% uh, before they joined the World Trade Organization in 2001 to, until recently, about 7%. Now it's gone back up almost to the levels it was before they joined the WTO. By the way, it's lower. Uh, it's gone even lower on imports uh, from other countries, so we're losing market share. So I think those charges aren't all that valid. And then the currency manipulation is probably the most uh, specious charge of all. The Chinese, uh, 10 years ago, you had a better case to make that the Chinese were manipulating their currency. But Yeah, so let's, let's go into a bit more yes. depth into the currency manipulation. Absolutely. Um, what, what exactly is the charge that China is manipulating its currency? And what would this mean um, if it was correct? Yeah, well... Uh, currency manipulation is basically a, a country through its central bank uh, pushing its currency down in international exchange markets. And that gains at least a short-term advantage because their exports become more competitive and more affordable, and it raises the cost of imports. Um, and countries have done that in the past. I would argue uh, it's not a successful policy in the long run for increasing your nation's competitiveness and the prosperity of your people. I mean, just sort of common sense. Do you, do you make your people richer by making their currency worth less in global markets? I would say no. But anyway, um, the U.S. law and the U.S. Treasury have actually defined currency manipulation pretty pretty precisely over the last three or four years. And that is um, one-way intervention in currency markets, just as we talked about, a country pushing down its currency, and also a large uh, bilateral surplus with the United States, or in other words, a deficit from the United States. Uh, and China definitely meets that. And then an overall uh, current account or overall trade surplus with the rest of the world. Well, China had that at one point, but actually now it's quite small. So uh, China has not been intervening in currency markets, not to push their currency down. They've actually been intervening recently to prop up their currency because of the trade war and other economic factors. Their currency, the pressure has been, the market pressure has been down on their currency. So they've not intervened. They don't have a large current account or overall trade surplus with the rest of the world. The only thing is they have a large bilateral deficit with the United States. Uh, and so even by our own government's definition, China is not a currency manipulator. The President Trump's own Treasury Department, by law, issues a report twice a year on the currency and trade practices of other countries. They have declined to name China a currency manipulator. Actually, we haven't named China a currency manipulator since the early 1990s. 25 years, more than 25 years ago. Uh, and so this latest uh, claim by the Treasury Department that China is manipulating its currency has all the signs of being a, a political statement and not having any basis in real economic factors. So what would be some recommendations? What are some ways that we can step out of this trade war 
and roll back the clock and repair relations with China and also uh, have free trade for both countries? That, that is uh, the most important question of the day. And actually, uh, if, if your listeners go to our website, mercatus.org, they can find all our research about uh, about international trade. But my colleague here at Mercatus, uh, George Mason University professor uh, Don Boudreau and I uh, wrote a paper uh, a couple of months ago uh, about, on this very subject about how how we should respond as a nation to China's intellectual uh, property practices. And the recommendations we made uh, uh, were not to impose the tariffs. In fact, they were to lift these uh, self-defeating uh, tariffs that the president has imposed against China, which are not leading us to any progress or a deal. Repeal the tariffs, but also take concrete action to challenge China's intellectual property practices in the World Trade Organization. Uh, China and the United States and more than 160 other countries belong to the World Trade Organization. That has a dispute settlement mechanism. We have taken China to the WTO uh, in the last two decades, uh, more than 20 times, and have prevailed. And China has moved in a market direction in, in all those cases. Um, we're underutilizing it right now. In fact, the administration is undermining the WTO, which I think is a huge mistake. Another step we can take is to target the actual offenders in China. Uh, you know, we've heard a lot about uh, the company Huawei. There are other Chinese uh, companies that are accused of violating intellectual property. There are agencies in China, individuals in China, uh, that we know are engaged in intellectual property theft or violation of intellectual property rules. We should go directly after the bad actors. We can impose sanctions. Uh, we can impose specific tariffs or, or bans uh, from doing business against the Chinese actors. We should be doing that rather than these blanket tariffs uh, that are leaving millions of innocent uh, victims and businesses. Um, we can regulate Chinese investment in the United States. Another concern is that China is buying up uh, U.S. technology companies and then transferring the technology back. I think that's uh, exaggerated, but we do have a mechanism. We have an agency here, an interagency uh, board set up called the uh, a Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, CFIUS. And that has the ability to block uh, foreign acquisitions of certain U.S. companies and assets. We should use that. So you put all that. And the final thing is, and this kind of covers everything I said, is that we should work with our allies, uh, the European Union, Canada, Japan, Australia, and others who have the same concerns we do, join together, bringing cases in the WTO uh, against China. We should also consider rejoining the Trans-Pacific Partnership. That was an important, complicated agreement that the Obama administration uh, negotiated with 11 other countries in the Pacific Rim, including New Zealand, Australia, Canada, Japan. Uh, that was a free trade agreement that would have provided an alternative to the Chinese model. Uh, unwisely, President Trump withdrew us from that agreement. Uh, one of the first things he did on taking office, that has actually reduced our leverage 
uh, in the region and enhance China's leverage. So we should get back into uh, that free trade agreement with our, our Western allies in that part of the world. So what effect is the Brexit going to have on U.S. trade? Uh, the United States has an economic interest in Brexit. Um, Great Britain is one of our major trading partners. Uh, it's the number, depending on how you measure it, the number, uh, number five uh, market for U.S. goods exports. It is the number one market for U.S. services exports. In fact, uh, we do more services trade with Britain than we do goods trade. Uh, they are the number one foreign investor in the United States. More than a million Americans work for British-owned companies in the United States. More than a million Brits work for American-owned companies in, in Great Britain uh, and Northern Ireland. So they're a very important uh, economic and commercial partner. They're, of course, a very important strategic partner. So uh, we, have an, we have an interest in Brexit. I think that relationship would continue whether they were inside or outside the European Union. So um, what, Do you think there what, might be a flight to safety effect, which uh, boosts U.S. trade with Britain if Britain follows through with the Brexit? I I don't know. There's a lot of cross currents. Um, you know, there's some fears that, especially if there's a hard Brexit on October 31st, right, where they uh, leave the European Union without a an agreement with Europe about continuing trade relations. Uh, that could be quite disruptive of trade, at least in the short run. Um, and that would affect our, our, our trade with Britain. So um, I think e either, either way, uh, we're going to continue to have a strong relationship with Great Britain. They are the world's uh, fifth largest economy. We have lots of historic ties and linguistic ties. So uh, what, whatever happens in the short run, we're going to continue to have an important relationship with Britain. If they do leave the European Union, the big opportunity is for the United States and Britain to sign a free trade agreement. And both governments, uh, Boris Johnson in uh, Britain, Donald Trump administration here in the U.S. have signaled uh, their enthusiasm for negotiating a free trade agreement, which could uh, deepen our commercial ties even further. So what about the argument that there's a lot of these very uh, problematic EU regulations within the UK um, and that it's going to allow the UK to adopt a much more competitive regulatory framework to have uh, much lower taxes, for example, um, and that this is going to attract a lot of business and increase the trade with the US for that reason, in addition to the uh, flight to safety effect? Yeah, that's the that's the best case scenario, and I and I hope that proves to be true. And I think Prime Minister Johnson has said a lot of good things so far. He is some people say he's Britain's Donald Trump, but I think there are a lot of uh, stark differences. Um, they they both have kind of funky hairstyles uh, and seem to like each other, but uh, some of the differences are uh, Boris Johnson is strongly pro-trade. Uh, he believes in free trade. Um, he's also pro-immigration, which is very interesting. Um, and so uh, I think if the conservatives under Boris Johnson's leadership continue to govern Britain, I think you'll see them move in that direction. Uh, more, more deregulation, lower taxes, um, 
the European Union has a, a, a common a tariff area, right? A customs union. And they're generally low tariff uh, in terms of trade, but they have uh, uh, their highest duties tend to be on uh, agricultural products. They do have a 10% duty on imported automobiles. Uh, and my hope is that a Britain outside the European Union will, uh, I'd like to see them go to zero tariffs on virtually everything. Uh, but there's a, uh, a great hope and expectation that they will get rid of those uh, high tariffs. And if we have a trade agreement with them, uh, like our trade agreements with that we have with 20 other countries, uh, we can achieve virtually zero tariffs on, on all goods between the countries. So um, what would be a really bad worst case scenario for Brexit looks like? Assume that it's the most destabilizing, the most chaotic, and that the governments have very poor responses to it in the US, EU, and the UK. What, what would that scenario look like? Yeah, here's the worst case scenario. And unfortunately, it's, uh, I, I wouldn't say it's probable, but it's certainly plausible. And that is uh, the, the hard Brexit proves to be very disruptive. Um, it uh, shakes business confidence in Britain. Uh, the other thing hanging over uh, Britain is uh, the Labour Party leadership. Uh, the Labour, the opposition leader is uh, a member of parliament named Jeremy Corbyn, and he is hard left. Uh, he's to the left of Bernie Sanders. Uh, and, if, and if his government, if his party were to take over the government of Britain, uh, you wouldn't see taxes go down. I think you'd see them go up. Uh, you'd see regulation increase maybe uh, beyond what the European Union would do. Um, and so, you know, the, the Britain being uh, asserting its sovereignty and taking back control uh, could be a two-edged sword, and that is it could move in the pro-market direction, but also under a labor government, under Jeremy Corbyn, it could move towards uh, more regulation, higher taxes, nationalizing industry, uh, and and in my view, being a, a pro-market person, I think that could discourage investment and economic growth in Britain, and they would be uh, a, a, a less robust trading and commercial partner to the United States under those conditions. And Jeremy Corbyn may not want to negotiate a free trade agreement with the United States. He doesn't like the United States that much, <laughs> according to his public pronouncements. So there's just a lot of uncertainty uh, surrounding Brexit right now. So we've been talking a lot about specific instances of trade-related events, the U.S.-China trade wars, the Brexit. Let's let's talk a bit about trade in the abstract. Um, what is the case for free trade? Well, uh, the most, I think, the most enduring case for free trade is that it allows individuals and nations uh, to, to prosper, to be more productive. Um, just think of trade on a personal level. Uh, you and I are better off because we can specialize in what we do best and trade for things like food and clothing and housing. Think how poor we would be as individuals if we had to make all our own clothes and shoes, grow our own food, build our own homes. Um, that's what Adam Smith said when he, he said uh, 
uh, what is prudent for a household can scarce be folly in a kingdom. So na nations are better off when they specialize and do what they're best in and then trading uh, for the rest. Uh, free trade has proven to be a superior policy uh, over the decade and the centuries. Uh, you just look around the world, nations that are more open to trade and international investment uh, have higher standards of living uh, and their people are just freer uh, all, all around. So free trade uh, is a robust policy. The US in a bipartisan fashion has embraced freer trade. Uh, since World War II, we had a, a very negative experience in the Great Depression with the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act and retaliation from other countries. Um, and uh, we've been much better off embracing free trade. We're better off economically. And then uh, nations that trade with each other tend, just tend to get along better. Uh, it's an instrument of foreign policy and peace. Uh, and I think the more we pursue free trade in the United States, the better are we, the better off we are day to day economically. But I think we, we also cultivate a more hospitable and peaceful world. So I'd like to go over a few objections to common sort of free trade arguments. And the first is what of the argument that there's certain industries like the US domestic steel industry, which need need to be protected or else they'll be in in and uh, in, go into foreign hands and disappear from the United States. Yeah, that that is an argument that you could kind of make in a textbook, uh, but it almost never works in in real life. Uh, you know, na national security is uh, to, to and quote, food production, uh, for example. Yes, uh, it's kind of the last. Uh, the, the national security argument is the last refuge of of protectionists when their economic arguments uh, don't work. Look, our our security is rooted. Uh, not in protecting domestic industries, but in being the most productive country we can, offering good, our goods and services to the rest of the world and trading uh, with them. But let, let's just take the two examples you brought up. Steel. Uh, before the president imposed his tariffs last year, uh, we, have, we have had and continue to have a viable steel industry. We were producing 80 million tons of steel a year. It was... Uh, providing most of the steel we consume here in the United States. The U.S. military consumes a very small amount of steel relative to what we produce. They didn't need uh, pr a protected domestic uh, steel industry. All the tariffs have done is, one, invite retaliation from other countries, which has been bad, but it's driven up the domestic price of steel. And for every steel worker, there are 30 workers in the United States in industries that use steel. Their jobs are made less secure. I'm talking uh, automobiles, construction, um, appliances, all those industries. So uh, if, if you want to promote an industry, you can do things. You can have direct subsidies. That's less damaging. Um, you can have the government uh, through procurement, uh, favor domestic industries, but don't raise tariffs against the rest of the world. Same with agriculture. Uh, we would be foolish uh, to raise barriers to agriculture. We, we are a fantastically productive agricultural country. We export uh, one out of five uh, acres uh, in this country of, of production. Uh, that adds to our security. Uh, and finally, uh, 
the things we import, most of the stuff we import that are of any arguable strategic benefit, uh, we tend to import from our allies, uh, Canada, European Union, Japan. Uh, they're not a national security. It, how, how absurd was it to impose steel duties against imports from Canada as though sourcing steel from Canada was some threat to our national security. So these national, I would just urge your listeners to be very skeptical when anybody uses national security to justify tariffs that ultimately are just to benefit a domestic special interest. So what about the argument that, um, for example, in the case of China, uh, China's intellectual property thefts in the US um, sort of justifies some sort of a reduction of trade with the country of China, um, maybe from a national security perspective, maybe from a perspective of, uh, of showing other countries. Um, like that would be an example uh, where having all of these Chinese nationals for long periods of time in US companies and all of this commercial access may have made American markets more vulnerable. Well, I think the answer to that is, uh, let's go after the problem thinking strategically uh, and not these blanket tariffs, which have not achieved the, the objective. We, we haven't improved China's behavior one bit uh, with this tariff war. If anything, we've strengthened and hardened the hardliners in Beijing uh, against the United States. Um, and if anything, we've probably created some sympathy for China around the world. It's been a self-defeating policy. I think we should use the instruments we, we talked about earlier in our conversation, uh, using existing U.S. law to uh, oversee and, and potentially block uh, Chinese investments in strategic U.S. companies or industries. We can monitor individuals here in the United States from China. You know, we have 600,000 Chinese students here in the United States. To, to label them uh, spies, I think, is just irresponsible and unfair to them. Uh, <clears throat> Chinese nationals and immigrants here in the United States have contributed significantly to our economy uh, and, our, and our technological uh, base. Uh, and we can go after bad actors in China that are practicing uh, cyber, cyber theft uh, and things like that. So Ch China is not an ally like Japan or Australia uh, or, or Canada. They're clearly a rival. So we need to go in uh, with our guard up, with our antenna up. Uh, but we can also trade in a mutually beneficial way with them, which we have with China for Three, three or decades or more since they came out of their isolation. And I think we should continue that while uh, monitoring specific practices. So I want to shift gears a bit and go into the question of trade, international trade sanctions against certain countries like Iran and says certain people want to do against uh, other countries, you know, that are more controversial like Israel. Um, the case of North Korea seems to show that sanctions, the effectiveness of sanctions is, is very debatable and, and uncertain. Um, would you make the case that we should just have uh, international trade with uh, all countries and repeal sanctions? You know, as much of a free trader as I am, I, I wouldn't go that far. 
And this is where uh, you're really getting out of the realm of uh, trade as an economic issue and you're getting and more, more trade into, as a geopolitical instrument right or even just foreign policy you know uh, iran <laughs> iran is an enemy of the united states their government uh, by any measure uh north korea is a hostile foreign power uh and we need to make this case that the way that you beat a north korea or an iran in the long term is by having open trade and for example, allowing Iran to have access to US consumer goods and creating sort of a demand for a free market, much more liberal sort of regime. Yes, and I wouldn't dismiss that, that argumentation. The, 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 on, the only thing I'm just raising a caveat, a qualification, and that is if a, if a foreign government is openly hostile to the United States and is actively working against our interests um, there is an argument for, well, certainly on like nuclear materials and, and missile technology. Uh, we, we shouldn't allow people to sell those to these hostile regimes where that technology can then be turned against us and our allies. So I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about this, but uh, I just think there's a case where it, it really uh, spills over in a significant way into the foreign policy realm. I, I will say uh, sanctions have been overused in this country. They don't tend to be effective. Uh, certainly, for example, against Cuba. Uh, we've had an embargo against Cuba for over half a century, and it has not achieved what we, our government intended it to achieve. There hasn't been a fundamental change in their government there. It hasn't affected their behavior. So I'd like to see us largely lift the embargo uh, with Cuba. So I, I'll just say it's it's a country by country case. I think we have to be careful of sweeping sweeping statements one way or, or the other. Right, right. There's an interesting example, uh, a sort of a, a case study of this. And, and I have two good examples about how China's Belt and Road has sort of taken advantage of um, ill-placed US sanctions and Western sanctions. The first is the case of Iran, where Iran has an oversupply of highly educated labor. So the Chinese have recently funded a high-speed railroad that goes straight to Tehran. Um, and they're going to be able to take advantage of all of these highly educated, yet fairly cheap, uh, high-skilled Iranian laborers in their western province and another example of this was that after the 2014-2015 crimean crisis the um uh, european union imposed sanctions on russia to buy less oil from russia hoping to cripple the government revenues but the chinese government started building oil pipelines and increasing the oil purchases from russia in the following years and uh, every year that the and uh, that that this goes on, the U.S. sanctions on Iran and Russia become less effective, and they've sort of created an opportunity for China. Um, have you have you heard anything about this, or do you have any any similar examples that you know of 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 sanctions having this this sort of unusual effect? Yeah, I'm I'm not an expert. I'm, I I know a little bit about the Belt and Road initiative but it isn't squarely in my area i right. i would say if if china and another government want to make arrangements for china to uh build uh infrastructure in that country that's really be between them i mean 
we can have a discussion with our allies about whether it's prudent uh, or not. You know, there is some pushback on the Belt and Road, isn't there? And uh, countries are uh, seeing, and it's quite plausible, <laughs> that China is taking advantage of them and saddling them with a, with a lot of debt. So I think it's just really between China and these these other countries. We need to do what's in our interest. And I think it's in our America's interest uh, to keep our trade barriers as low as possible, to welcome foreign investment in the United States, uh, while being uh, sensitive to issues that directly affect our national security. So to change gear a bit, there's been a lot of changes of the nature of international trade over the last few decades. Um, there's been the rise of companies like Amazon with home shipping. There's yes. been technologies like Bitcoin and the blockchain, which have created sort of entirely virtual currencies. And now there's a whole wide variety of transactions which could be considered international trade, but where no physical products are exchanged. For example, when I send money to somebody else to buy a, a song or a digital download or something like yes. that. Um, how is the changing nature of technology uh, changing the way that international trade should be conceived of by policymakers? Yeah, that, that, that's a really big cosmic kind of question. And of course, uh, technology and trade have been intertwined for centuries, haven't they? You know, ship technology, steamships, uh, the containerization revolution of the 50s and, and the 60s, 60s. The internet has had a profound effect on international trade. Um, for example, uh, Richard Baldwin in his book, The Great Convergence, uh, points out that uh, with the rise of the internet, it's been uh, much more uh, possible and plausible for, for country companies to spread their supply chains around the world and monitor uh, the production facilities in less developed uh, countries in a way it wasn't uh, be before. Uh, and then, of course, most recently, as you just mentioned, uh, things like blockchain, artificial intelligence, uh, digital trade. Uh, the, these are all important, I would say, uh, beneficial to humankind. Um, you know, digital trade, for example, the U.S. is very competitive in these areas. That's why uh, newer trade agreements, uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership being one of them, uh, have digital trade chapters that say uh, no taxes or no barriers on digital trade. Um, uh, servers, where servers are located. It's more and more important for the United States to uh, try to, to make it an international norm that uh, governments can't dictate that servers be uh, located in those countries. Um, and, and that's important. And that's contained in, uh, in most trade agreements. So uh, technology and trade uh, work together. Uh, and I would say generally in a beneficial way uh, for, for mankind, uh, even though uh, some people and some companies lose out from the competition, uh, generally we're all left uh, better off. So I think with that positive note, we're going to end today's episode. So I would like to thank you very much for coming on to uh, the Geoeconomics podcast. Um, with that, I have one last question. And you're currently working at the Mercatus Center. Is there anything that you'd like to uh, promote, any projects that you're working on that you would uh, like to tell our audience about? Uh, 
Yes. Uh, I, I've authored a, a paper for Mercatus on the benefits of a U.S.-United Kingdom free trade agreement, and they're welcome to look that up on our website. That's going to be very much in the news uh, in coming months with, uh, with Brexit uh, approaching. And then the paper I mentioned on uh, how the United States should respond to uh, Chinese intellectual property practices. Uh, I think those, those two recent research efforts on my part are the most relevant to our conversation today. All right. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Great. It's been a pleasure. I would like to thank Daniel Griswold a lot for coming on to the Geoeconomics Podcast. The Geoeconomics Podcast is brought to you by the Adrian Opel Group. The Adrian Opel Group is a business intelligence and consulting firm that specializes in economic zones and free trade zones. We provide a wide variety of services such as due diligence, investment assistance, marketing services, and cybersecurity. For more information, please visit adrianopelgroup.com.